G'day and welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. This week in episode 11, following on from the devastating police confrontation at Stringybark Creek, we'll take a look at the responses in Mansfield and the public's shock and grief in general. We'll also have a bit of a look at some of the other players in the Kelly saga, a bit of a general background for some of the sympathisers involved and some of the authorities who will continue to hunt the now outlawed Kelly gang. But before I begin, let me remind you that extra supporting material for this episode can be found on the Australian Histories podcast website at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au and that's histories with an I-E-S. And a contact tab is available there too if you'd like to get in touch. Now as always, I have listed the resources that I've used um, to support the information I'm presenting in case you wish to follow up further, but I wanted to flag one source in particular this time, as it has been an invaluable reference for this episode in particular, and it is so well put together that anyone with a serious interest in the Kelly story may well like to own a copy themselves. Publishing details are in the reference list on the website, but the resource I'm wanting to flag is titled The Ned Kelly Encyclopedia by Justin Caulfield. My copy is the um, 2003 edition, published by Lothian Books in Melbourne. Justin has done a great job gathering and presenting all the known details together, and the citations within are fascinating to follow. I highly recommend it for any Kelly story fan. If you're new to the Australian Histories podcast, welcome. Glad to have you join our listening community. We're partway through the Kelly saga at this point, so you may like to start back at episode three and binge through up to this episode so you can get the whole story background before listening to this one. For those of you already on board and awaiting the new episode, let's get to it. As mentioned, we'll look this week at some of the other players in the Kelly saga. But there's another topic I thought we should talk about first. In the previous episodes, I've spoken a bit about tracking. That is, the use by the police of skilled Aboriginal trackers to assist in hunting out fugitives in the bush. I've had a bit of a laugh at the police, and indeed at the Kellys, regarding their anxiety about being tracked and how every man and his dog seemed to think removing one's shoes would foil such tracking. Of course, before the trackers were employed tracing white men in boots, all of their experience would have been used for shoeless animal or human tracks over the millennia, so it's unlikely that discarding of shoes would have done anything other than give the former wearer sore feet and risk bull ant bites in the bush. But actually, the expert and quite amazing skills displayed by the Aboriginal trackers were indeed formidable, and had they been able to operate without the interference of the sceptical and perpetually inept Victoria Police management, there's a very strong likelihood they would have brought about the Kelly's capture much earlier. Trackers had indeed located them on at least one occasion. But it is a bit funny. The police were removing their shoes all over the place, trying to avoid being traced by the Kellys. But any real native tracker would have been able to follow such a person, shod or not. I think the amusing thing is that Ned had apparently already started acquiring the beginnings of his legendary persona, 
The police and others, for some reason, assumed that the Irish-Australian Ned had such tracking expertise himself. Ned was certainly aware of the skills that the Aboriginal trackers possessed and was most definitely respectful and even scared of their abilities. But he was not brought up in the Aboriginal culture himself and would therefore have been extremely unlikely to have had much talent in using such delicate visual and interpretive skills. Indeed, he doesn't really strike me as a person with enough calm and quiet attention to master such a subtle faculty. Of course, being bush-born and bred, he would certainly have had a familiarity and a competence in bushcraft and navigation, certainly over and above the general police sent in to hunt him, as was evidenced by the gang being able to virtually disappear whenever they wished. The Aboriginal trackers, often called black trackers at the time, were recruited for their expertise at reading the landscape navigating vast distances without maps or other navigation tools, and identifying and tracking animals or humans through an unending variety of terrain right across Australia. Being able to track and hunt animals, use the landscape clues to find water or suitable paths to follow, or to read the tracks of known or unknown persons was integral to their lifestyle. These skills accompanied their cultural attachment to land and their complex knowledge system, and were likely learned and honed throughout their childhoods, so that using these skills became part of their regular and daily lives, constantly seeing subtle indicators in the landscape that most new Australians had little hope of recognising. For the white police, tracking a fugitive over rough ground looked to them like the practice of an unknowable sixth sense, though of course the skills were largely based on careful looking for visual disturbances and clues. Presland, in his book on native police, writes that Aboriginal people did not just see more than the Europeans in the landscape, but they see it in a different way, a more holistic way, full of attention, actually becoming aware of what's in the environment rather than being conditioned to see what they expect to see. He goes on to say that a tracker's gaze would sweep the ground maybe 10 or 15 metres ahead, but often so casually that to the observers nothing much was happening at all. It is this seemingly instinctual and magical ability that made the trackers such a worry for the bushrangers. They seemed supernatural and unstoppable, and no one could feel safe moving about in the bush if the trackers were in the area. Aboriginal people had been coerced into undertaking tracking work from the very beginning of white settlement. What contench a British Marine officer from the First Fleet published two books about the settlement at Port Jackson and there records the use of Eora men, Colby and Bolladeri, in 1791 to find their way through to the Hawkesbury River. As the police forces developed, they began recruiting local Aboriginal trackers to assist with navigation, to find food and water while they were out of the settled areas, and in tracking lost persons or hunting down the wanted. This included having them work with the police in hunting down their own people or those of other, quote, troublesome tribes. So the use of native police in general can be a quite confronting and unhappy history in the main with some brutal outcomes. But tracking bushrangers became a common task after the gold rush boom in crime and the native trackers were used on several occasions during the Kelly outbreak. Tracks left by individual animals or people could be often distinguished by their own unique gait, 
particularly if the tracker knew them. But even without knowing their quarry, trackers could often surmise a great deal of information about them, including their likely size, their speed of travel, and sometimes even their physical state, say staggering or walking well, for example, from the footfall marks and other clues. And of course, shoes would have expected to have left harder markings than bare feet, so one really can see why those scared of being tracked might remove their boots. I'm being a bit harsh. <laughs> but Presland notes that even a change in shoes would not throw off a good tracker. A full range of clues would add to the overall picture of disturbance in the environment, along with a constant deductive reasoning, my dear Watson. So skilled trackers could find such evidence even when being required to track in unknown areas, in unfamiliar terrain, which would have added to the challenge. So from the beginning of the 1800s, there was a native police corps in most states uh, who were sometimes uniformed and mounted officers, sometimes armed, but always working under white officers to undertake their duties. In Victoria, the Native Corps operated sort of on and off over several periods and the Corps was formalised in 1880 and began operating in some capacity then right through to 1969. Though the local Aboriginals often joined the service, the Victorian Police Corps was mainly made up actually of Queenslanders, numbering about 90 over the years. Queensland Aboriginal men were usually referred to as Moori men the term preferred by the men themselves, according to Preslin. And it was a group of these Moori men that formed the dedicated tracking team towards the end of the Kelly period on the run. The Moori trackers, known by the following rather patronising names, Corporal Sambo, Troopers Barney, Hero, Jimmy, Johnny and Jackie, came from the Fraser Island area of Queensland. So the cold Victorian northeast must have been quite a shock. This group were enlisted mounted troopers. They were armed and operating as a team with their white officers, Senior Constable Tom King, and led by Lieutenant Stanhope O'Connor. Though Kelly was reputedly quite terrified of their skills and their successes, the Victorian police failed to use them to their greatest advantage. After initially refusing their offer to join the hunt earlier, the failure of the local search saw Chief Commissioner Standish under pressure to yield and try the trackers. So the Queensland Native Corps arrived in the northeast in March of 1879. But, and this is unlikely to surprise you, again the police command was about to bungle a great opportunity. The Queensland troop were placed under the direction of the Victorians and the ongoing antipathy and arrogance of Standish proved obstructive. He was clearly too proud and too racist to allow the officers to undertake their activities without interference. Standish insisted six extra Victorian troopers were to go with the Corps, thus reducing their opportunity for travelling discreetly. Their stay in Victoria ended in quite a feud between the services, and later the Royal Commission would recognise this failure as yet another opportunity lost. Unfortunately, Colonel Sambo died not long after their arrival from a chest infection and he was buried in Benalla. Moses Buller, born in Queensland but then living in the Corrandirk Aboriginal Station at Healesville in Victoria, was brought in to make up the tracker numbers. And another tracker living at Corrandirk, uh, Tommy Spider, also joined them in the coming months. 
The arrival of the Queensland trackers did seem to worry the gang, and Kelly commented on his concerns later. Though they were not put to ideal use to track them down, the anxiety of having them available to the police hunt meant that the gang's movements were well restricted after they arrived. And again, Kelly's later comments indicate the presence of the trackers locally helped weary the gang to their life on the run. During other periods of the Kelly outbreak, more local Koori trackers were recruited to join the search parties for varying periods, one of whom was the well-known and respected Coolan clansman William Barrack. It was Barrack and his kin who originally moved his people to the Corrandirk Aboriginal Station in 1863, having seen their access to their traditional lands around Melbourne disappear. Though a clan elder by the time of the Kelly outbreak, he had some history working with the police in the past, and so he returned on a couple of occasions to join the Kelly hunt before the Murray men came south. Barrack was a very important elder and leader in Melbourne, and he is thought to have been about 12 or so when he witnessed the arrival of John Batman to negotiate for land in Melbourne with the local clans. He spoke of being present when Batman's treaty was signed. In later years, he recorded some of his memories, including an encounter with the Kellys, in a document called, quote, My Words, which is now held in the State Library of Victoria. Having worked on and off with the police over the years, he was recognised as an excellent tracker and was engaged regularly to track missing children and fugitives. He recalled being set to track the gang and once led the police very close to their position hiding in the dense bush. Wink quotes a passage from My Words, Barrack recording, quote, I said, robbers in there, go and get them. But they said, you go in, we follow. I said, I have no gun, I track, you are cowards. Then they say, we'll go back for help and tell Mr Hare, unquote. <laughs> so, while he apparently spoke with pride about his police work, he was less than impressed with the calibre of the force in general, believing them poorly prepared and lacking in bravery. More recently, Barrack's life is being more widely recognised and celebrated, his likeness now appears on an impressive building at one end of Melbourne City Grid. I'll put an image of that building up on the Australian Histories podcast website, as it's a brilliant piece of architecture and a great way to commemorate an impressive man. So that's the trackers. Next, I thought it might be interesting to reflect on some of the others who must have been in cahoots with the gang. The Kelly gang, according to the authorities hunting them, consisted of Ned, his younger brother Dan, his friend Joe Byrne and Dan's mate, Steve Hart. At least this was the gang as it was outlawed after the Stringybark Creek carnage. Though in the beginning they only knew the identity of Ned and Dan. Joe and Steve were only identified as the other two gang members in the weeks following. There were probably several others who were close and common friends of Ned and the boys but who, simply by chance, were not with them on that day for the confrontation with police and therefore not officially regarded as gang members. But some of these lads should perhaps have been considered at least close associates of the gang because without their support the Kelly gang could not have stayed so long on the run. Indeed, the formation and constituents of the Kelly gang as we know them may simply have been a matter of fate, almost accidental really. 
Many of the greeter mob came and went from the Bullock Creek hut during the period after the Fitzpatrick incident, when Ned and Dan were hiding there. And those that happened to be with them on the fateful day at Stringybark Creek, well, that might really have just come down to luck. The author McQuilton is also of the opinion that on any other day, the gang may well have included any one or more of a number of the local lads. So we might look a little more at the greeter mob and some of the people who could be considered as unofficial or peripheral members of the Kelly gang. Naturally, when the boys fled Eleven Mile Creek after the Fitzpatrick incident, with the police scouring the country for them, Ned and Dan spent a great deal of time together hiding out at the Bullet Creek hut, keeping busy by gold prospecting and perhaps again operating the still. Many of the greeter mob joined them there for visits, or in the case of Steve Hart and Joe Byrne, spent varying spells of time living in the bush with the Kellys. The greeter mob can be described as, quote, a loose group of young larrikins who rode around greeter and the surrounding district, unquote. The core of the group seems to have included Ned's brothers, Dan and Jim Kelly, Steve Hart, Joe Byrne, Aaron Sherritt, and Tom and Jack Lloyd at least, but other persons suggested in various sources include Denny McAuliffe, Jack McAvoy, John O'Brien, and Joe Harvey, amongst others. Perhaps Ned was a bit more grown up to be a member of such a mob, um, as when they were making themselves known in the district, Ned was largely working away at the mills, but he would have been riding out with them from time to time too, no doubt, attending races and trips to town, along with many other of the local lads. And we can expect that most of those boys, and indeed their sisters and even some of the other family members, would have remained solid in their loyalty to the gang against the despised police even after they were outlawed. The police and respectable persons from the neighbourhood complained that the greeter mob was known to, quote, hang around the local hotels and ride about the neighbourhood in a larrikin fashion, unquote. Which one assumes means boldly showing off and being rowdy and boisterous, the kind of thing every generation might see in the public spaces from the local lads from time to time. These days, it's less flash riding and more doing donuts in the industrial estates, but apparently history repeats one way or another. These lads were regularly suspected of horse theft, and indeed, many of the greeter mob were charged and jailed for borrowing or stealing stock, so their reputations were probably very well deserved, if we're being fair. And there was a fair show of violence and aggressive behaviour of one sort or another too, with assaults and threats also being recorded against them. But, even worse than all of that, the greeter mob were often seen to be, quote, riding recklessly about the neighbourhood, dressed flash, wearing the chin strap of their hats under their noses, the hat tipped forward, shading their eyes, and wearing brightly coloured sashes around their waists, unquote. Fancy, those antisocial young hooligans dressed in some new and questionable youthful trademark clothing. Who would believe such a thing might happen amongst this new generation? But actually, the sash wearing is particularly interesting to me. Was it started by Dan in homage to Ned and his beloved green and gold hero sash from the grateful Sheldon family from Avenal? Or were the sashes just the hoodies of their day? The chin straps under the nose, just the underwear peeking out from the sagging jeans kind of youthful aesthetic of its day. <laughs> uh, 
It is hard for me not to read something into it, though. About the Avenal sash Ned kept all those years. But, sadly, once again, we've no way of knowing if there were any special meaning to the sash wearing for the greeter boys. What we do know, though, is that the greeter mob were considered a scourge to the local community not associated with their families, and that the police considered them all trouble, and indeed they often were in trouble in their neighbourhood. Certainly there were several people that the police thought were involved enough with the gang to be considered pseudo-gang members themselves. Indeed, Tom Lloyd Jr., that's Ned's cousin, who may well have actually been with the Kellys on the day of the confrontation at Stringybark Creek, is often considered a fifth member of the Kelly gang by historians, though of course he was not seen by McIntyre or mentioned by other informants, so he was never formally named as a gang member, but there is no doubt he was always loyal and helpful to the boys. Indeed, Tom lived well into the 1920s and he spoke about the gang and that period of his life in his later years, so we do have some very interesting first-person reflections provided by Tom including his later retelling of that Fitzpatrick incident to the author Keneally, which you might remember we discussed in episode 8, the Fitzpatrick incident. It's the retelling I suggested was likely to be the most reliable explanation of what actually occurred on the night at Eleven Mile Creek between Fitzpatrick and the Kellys, in my view. But there were others who assisted materially after the Kellys were outlawed too. Among those mentioned was Aaron Sherratt, though he lost favour over the period they were on the run. And possibly Wild Wright too. Certainly Tom's brother, Jack Lloyd, Joe's brothers, and many of the brothers, sisters, and close friends of all of the greeter mob boys were amongst the Kelly gang supporters. We've already talked a great deal about Ned's early years. Dan, you may remember, was born in the beverage house built by his father in June 1861, making him seven or so years younger than Ned. Little Dan was only five when Red died at Avenal, and he was ten at Greta when he had his own first brush with the law. He and his older brother Jim, then twelve, took the horse of a local hawker for a ride. The notorious Constable Flood caught them and took them both off to Wangaratta to spend the night in the lockup. Fortunately for them, they were discharged in the morning and no charges were laid. Dan, of course, grew into an excellent rider, and he was quite the show-off, as teenage boys can sometimes be, riding wild as part of the greeter mob. But he was capable of honest hard graft too, and he spent some time working as a shearer in the Riverina and on the Monaro High Plains during 1875 and 76, when in his early teens. And that's not a job for the faint-hearted. His first serious charge appears to have occurred after that, on his return from Greta. In October 1876, he was seen with a saddle that had been reported stolen from a Benalla hotel. Though he had a receipt um, proving that he had in fact purchased it from a man called Roberts for one pound, he was nonetheless charged with theft. He was committed for trial, and it was then that Ned took him originally for a stay at the Bullet Creek hut that first time, to keep him out of further trouble. When the case came up in February the following year, he was found not guilty, having evidence of proof of purchase. Dan's third brush with the law was more serious. The story told is that in the company of some of those greeter boys, they arrived one day at their local store, drunk and rowdy. 
They had earlier been advised by the storekeeper to bring some meat in to exchange for their desired goods, but on arriving with the agreed meat, the store was locked. It appears the boys broke in, intending to leave the meat and take the goods they came for. However, the storekeeper later claimed that they had broken in and stolen 113 pounds worth of goods. He also claimed that Tom Lloyd had tried to rape his wife and that Dan had assaulted another visitor on the premises. So these were very serious accusations. Dan admitted they had forced their way in, but only to claim the goods agreed upon and then to leave the meat as payment, and that the resulting disagreement and antagonism was instigated and escalated by the storekeeper Goodman himself, leading to false reports and charges. These reported charges resulted in predictably hostile comments from the local newspapers, describing the boys as ruffians, rogues, vagabonds and horse thieves. And to be fair, just the act of breaking into the closed store, confronting the owners and demanding their goods, was at least arrogant and reckless enough to be criminal, let alone any of the further assault and robbery allegations. These were not respectful and law-abiding lads, and while the papers were clearly one-eyed when it came to reporting about the Kellys and the Greeter mob, they were, no doubt, recording and representing, to some extent, the fears and feelings of many of the local citizens. With the dreaded hindsight, one could say the prudent course of action would have been for the lads to have turned around and called back at another time, once they found the store was closed. But prudent behaviour seems to have been regularly lacking in the neighbourhood. Tom and Dan were charged and tried in Benalla, and though the storekeeper was found to have fabricated many claims, Dan was nevertheless found guilty of willful damage and was jailed for three months. This was the only time Dan was jailed. The storekeeper, Goodman, was later jailed himself for perjury, so there's a good chance in this case the Kelly's version of the story was true. After jail, Dan returned to Greta, where only a couple of months later the Fitzpatrick incident took place in his mother's house. So that was to be the beginning of the end for young Dan. During the fateful Stringybark Creek encounter with police, Dan was apparently shot and injured by Kennedy the author Jones describing it as a grazed shoulder. Though Dan was supposed to have been armed at Stringybark Creek, McIntyre reported him yelling, quote, shoot that bastard, shoot that bastard, talking either of himself or of Kennedy, who was also running from the scene with Ned and Joe in pursuit. So if Dan were armed, or if the arms were loaded, one assumes he would have shot McIntyre himself rather than yell out. So either he was no longer armed or his injury stopped him from shooting. Hmm. McIntyre also described Dan's demeanour thus, quote, I knew who was most likely to be my executioner, unquote, thinking him an, quote, uncontrollable youth with a vicious nature, unquote. He described him becoming sullen and angry when Ned refused to let him handcuff the policeman, and that he seemed nervously excited, breaking into a short laugh, almost hysterical and constantly uttering violent oaths and threats. We can't know if this was Dan's standard mode of behaviour or if this was down to the shock of it all. He's only in his mid-teens at this time and even with his previous antisocial larrikin behaviour noted, an armed confrontation with police is quite an escalation and would certainly have raised everyone's anxiety levels. 
But after Stringybark Creek, once the gang became notorious, those who came into contact with them often recorded their impressions. Dan was later described as rarely speaking in company and clearly following the instructions of his brother. This seems a meeker character than the one McIntyre described. Certainly Dan was always noted as a fearless horse rider and some suggested he was clearly enjoying impersonating police at Gerildery. More on that in a later episode. So he was often calm and he was relishing some of the aspects of their time on the run at least. As the gang became more entrenched in their fate and their activities escalated in ferocity, if he was nervous and agitated at Stringybark Creek, young Dan must have become hardened to the outlaw tasks required of him. He was later sent to accompany Joe Byrne to deal with Sherrod. Whether he undertook these activities because of firm instruction, or hero worship of his older brother, or whether he was fully committed to the cause and the activities of the gang we cannot know. But his own earlier history seems to indicate a certain level of recklessness that may well have attracted him to the outlaw lifestyle without too much coaxing from Ned and the others. Dan's character, however, continues to be overshadowed by that of his charismatic brother, Ned, and so he remains a more opaque figure. Joe Byrne, though, was a very interesting person. Indeed, a quirky character for the times. Born in November of 1856, he was only a couple of years younger than Ned. Joe's grandfather was a convict, probably an Irish rebel involved in some kind of conspiracy against British rule, according to Caulfield. Joe's father, Patrick, had emigrated to Australia to reunite with his father after his father was freed. And they moved to the Monaro with him to make a living, and then eventually settling with his wife Margaret in the Woolshed Valley near Beechworth. Joe was born the eldest of eight children and attended the Woolshed Common School there, where he met and became close friends with Aaron Sherratt, despite the Sherratts being Protestant and the Burns being Catholic at a time when that usually mattered. The two tended to skive off a bit and got a reputation for being a little wild, raiding the neighbours' orchards and the like. But Joe's father died when he was only 13, so like Ned, he was forced to cease formal education and to help his mother feed and raise the younger children. It's a shame because he seems to have been an intelligent and successful student and he remained a regular reader into his adulthood. So he may well have moved on to a brighter future if all things had gone in his favour. Apparently his penmanship was the most accomplished of the gang and he was charged with writing the missives Ned later dictated for public dissemination. Though intentions aside, they didn't reach the wide audience the gang had hoped for during their lifetime at least. Like all the gang members, Joe was an accomplished horseman and confident in the Australian bush. The local area being a goldfield, there were Chinese camps nearby and, unusually for the time, Joe appears to have frequented the camps and made friends amongst the Chinese. Known to the Chinese locals as Ah Joe, he learned to speak some Cantonese. He ate Chinese food and he socialised with his friend Nam Xing. It's also said that he was a user of opium there, though it's not clear if or how desperately he was addicted to its use. In a period when white folks were highly xenophobic and when only a few years before the local miners were rioting and killing the Chinese, chasing them off the goldfields, it was not a common thing to be embedded and accepted in a Chinese community. 
I think this indicates some special qualities in Joe. He was a broad thinker and not afraid to ignore silly prejudices and live his life outside the usual social constraints, such as befriending the Chinese and being best mates with a proddy, displaying a confidence of sorts in himself. Certainly in their youth, Aaron and Joe were very close and firm friends, ignoring the religious conventions of the time to be warring with those of a different faith. Perhaps the friendship of Aaron and Joe indicated the beginnings in Australia of new men for a new country, prejudices of faith put aside. Well, it would have been good. According to Caulfield, Joe's first court appearance saw him described as a labourer when he was called as a witness to an inquest. He was asked to identify the body of a Chinese miner, Ah Sui. So that confirms that at 15 years old, he was already recognised as someone well acquainted with the Chinese community. He was said to be skilled at alluvial gold prospecting too, perhaps learning that patient and steady method from the successful Chinese prospectors. The following year, at 16 years old, he was himself charged with illegal use of his neighbour Anton Wick's horse. He was found guilty of that charge and fined 20 shillings. The next charge, unproved, was of stealing a saddle in company with his best friend Aaron Sherratt. But two months later they both again had a brush with the law. The lads had brought a cow to the local butcher, who accepted and processed the animal, but did not keep the hide, as he was required to do in those days. So this implies the police thought the cow stolen, but they couldn't directly implicate the boys with theft. And so they escaped any indictments, though the butcher himself was fined over not keeping the hide. If you recall from episode 4, Avenal, in those days the hide, with brand intact, was to be kept for some period of time to ensure proof of ownership of any butchered animal. In May 1876, though, Joe and Aaron were finally caught out, stealing cattle, and they served six months at Beechworth Jail. So, at 19, Joe had spent his first spell in prison like a great many of the greeter mob lads. Two months after their release, the boys went swimming in a dam on a property of Ah On. When Ah On and his friend came to chase them off with a bamboo stick, Sherrod threw a stone or some other object which caused a head injury to Ah On. As a result of the seriousness of the wound, the police decided to charge both men with, quote, intent to do grievous bodily harm, unquote. Byrne was, of course, acquitted, not having thrown anything himself, but Sherrod was found guilty of assault. However, the jury deemed it to have been committed in self-defence, owing to the fact that R. On had a bamboo stick, and they reconsidered also acquitting Sherrod. Byrne was now 20 years old, and he began associating more with Ned Kelly, probably getting involved in the horse theft racket Ned was running by then. They seem to have become very firm friends, developing a great deal of respect, trust and affection for each other in a short time. Caulfield writes that in April of 1878, when the Fitzpatrick incident took place at the Kelly homestead, it was Joe that was with Ned when he became involved in the scuffle with Fitzpatrick. And this may also fit with Tom Lloyd's later account of what happened. As I recounted in episode 8, Keneally's book also has Bricky Williamson stating that he held Joe back from entering the building and therefore being seen by Fitzpatrick. 
And it was that lack of identification which probably led to Bill Skilling being falsely accused and jailed for being an accessory. Fitzpatrick did not name Joe Byrne as being there, but Jones also suggests it may have been Joe Byrne and not Bill Skilling that was actually there on the night. Maybe Fitzpatrick saw another man in the shadows while being turfed off the property, but he did not recognise him and so simply named Skilling as one of the likely men. And Skilling, poor bugger, took the fall. We cannot be sure about that, but it's well known that Joe stayed on with the Kelly boys at the Bullock Creek hut, where they escaped to after the incident, so he seems to have opted to keep himself hidden there with the Kellys for some reason. Perhaps he thought he might be identified at some point, but whatever his motivation, and it's possible it was just loyalty to Ned, he remained with the Kellys well into October, and he was with them when they discovered the police search party at Stringybark Creek, and so was then involved indeed possibly instrumental, in making the decision to bail up the police camp. Kelly was aware and respectful of Joe's intelligence and he consulted with him on strategy as the gang's situation became more complicated. Like Kelly, Joe was very fond of and careful to support his own mother and he continued to frequently sneak down and visit her even while the police were staked out above the house looking for him there in the Woolshed Valley. His later fallout with his childhood friend Aaron Sherritt was both perplexing and terribly sad in the end, and it remains for me one of the more puzzling elements of the Kelly saga. We'll be looking at that in detail in an upcoming episode. Steve Hart also seems to have been with the Kellys at the hut when the police party came into the ranges, and was therefore sucked into the Kelly gang vortex, probably more by bad luck and bad timing than anything else. Though, he seems to have had the requisite wild streak. Steve's toast, quote, Here's to a short life and a merry one, unquote, seems to have been prophetic in the end. Just a year or so older than Dan, it seems that Steve was his mate, being another member of the greeter mob. Like many of the others, Steve was a fearless horseman, and he took delight in feats of daring such as jumping the railway gates. He was small and bow-legged, but he was certainly an excellent rider and actually worked as a jockey at Wangaratta from time to time. Born in October 1859 at Three Mile Creek near Beechworth to a selector family, we don't know much about his youth. But again, like many of the lads in the area, by 1877 he had served 12 months in jail for illegal use of a horse. There is most certainly a pattern and a complete disrespect for the idea of personal ownership amongst these boys. No hesitation in taking someone's stock for use or profit, it would seem. It was on his release from this jail term that he joined Ned and Dan at Bullet Creek. We don't know if he was there to try and keep out of trouble or to be in the exciting company of the Kelly boys, currently on the run for the attempted murder of Fitzpatrick. Plenty of young men are attracted to that kind of bravado, and with all the shooting practice going on at the hut, it would have been a life filled with bravado and young gangster bluster. But I think we could assume this eventuality at Stringybark Creek, this reality, came as a shock to them all, despite their boldness and active preparation for a run-in with police. You will draw your own conclusion at the end of the Kelly Saga series, but I am of the opinion that they probably did not set out on the day intending to murder the police, but rather that an unwise decision spiralled out of control with devastating consequences. Steve Hart was the last of the gang to be identified, 
as McIntyre had no idea who he was at the time. It was not until December, when the gang were at Euroa, that a local girl recognised him and began chatting, and so his identity was then revealed to the authorities. Those coming into contact with the gang described Steve as quiet and deferential to Ned. But he was bold enough to take a watch from the bank manager during a hold-up, and he seems actually to have been quite the little thief. At Gerildery, he also lifted a watch from one of the hostages, but when the gentleman complained to Ned, he was ordered to return it. This was the era of the gentleman bushrangers, and Ned, wanting to emulate his heroes, would not want the public to think them petty thieves, or to be stealing from the common man. It is this element that some have alluded to when trying to compare Kelly with the likes of Robin Hood. Certainly he was aware that good public opinion was highly important and that behaving in a way that was fair, keeping the innocent working man out of it and justifying his criminality as a response to unreasonable treatment by the squatters and the authorities was crucial for any chance of goodwill. So Steve was reprimanded by Ned when he had obviously robbed personal items in front of gathered crowds. Ned does not seem to have been concerned about the fact that he himself had taken Kennedy's pocket watch from the dead man, or that Joe remained wearing the other policeman's rings. So perhaps it's all about perception in front of the public, rather than genuine concern. The other thing of note about Steve Hart is that it's frequently recorded, with a sort of slightly suspect note, that he was known to ride about the countryside, side saddle, in women's clothing. This contention was also visited on Red Kelly all those years back, so perhaps it was a common kind of slur? I don't know. But Steve Hart does seem to have actually done so, being seen by police who assumed the rider was one of the Kelly sisters. If this was Steve, it seems to me to be a very smart way to get around the country, under the noses of police. I guess being of slight build, he could more easily get away with it. And of course he didn't have that giant Kelly beard. I saw an article online in The Conversation recently talking about the Sidney Nolan Kelly series paintings and the Steve Hart painting in particular. I'll put a link to that on my webpage. The author was talking about Nolan's life and his motivations for expressing the Kelly story. Nolan, being of Irish descent himself, and living in Heidelberg with John and Sunday Reed after going AWOL from the army, did a bit of a Steve Hart himself, apparently, when the military police came knocking. Snell writes, quote, He pulled on one of Sunday's dresses and wandered off into the paddocks. John Reed explained to the police, It's just me crazy kid sister. She likes to look after the geese, unquote. And Nolan began painting the series two years later, including the delightfully dressed Steve Hart on horseback. So the story of the Kellys gets under the skin of many. Tom Lloyd Jr. was the second son of Welshman Jack Lloyd and the Irish Catherine Quinn, sister of Ned's mum, Ellen Kelly, nee Quinn. Born in November in 1857, he was three years younger than his cousin Ned, but they appear to have been close mates throughout their childhoods. When Superintendent Hare's memoir reported on the betrayal and capture of Harry Power, which I quoted extensively in episode 6, Greta Part 2, he did not explicitly name the person involved, except to use the initial L. But Caulfield, in his Ned Kelly Encyclopedia, identifies Tom Lloyd's father, that's Jack Lloyd Sr., as being L. 
In April of 1870, possibly about to be charged with highway robbery himself, it's believed that Tom's father made a deal with Hare so that the charges would be dropped. If you recall from that earlier episode, Robert McBean had been a victim of Harry Powell's highway robbery and he was keen to get his stolen watch back. Lloyd was asked to approach Power with a £15 reward for returning the watch, which he did, and thus confirming for Hare and for Roberts that Jack Lloyd Sr. knew where Power was hiding. Then, putting the stick to work regarding his own pending charges and offering him the large carrot of the £500 reward, Jack very reluctantly led them to Harry's hideout and the police finally managed to capture Harry Power while he was sleeping there. Jack Lloyd Sr. received the payment of the reward in instalments via an intermediary. But if you recall, the young Ned Kelly was for a long time wrongly blamed as the one who'd given away Harry's secrets. So it's interesting that his sons, Tom Lloyd and young Jack Jr., were staunch and lifelong supporters of Ned and the gang. I'm not sure if they knew of their father's involvement in Harry's capture, but that betrayal did appear to be an anomaly amongst the close-knit family and community members in the Northeast, considering just how little useful information ever made it to the police in a timely manner during the Kelly outbreak. Certainly, after the Kelly gang was outlawed, Tom, at great personal risk to himself, was instrumental in providing food, supplies, and most importantly, intelligence to the gang on a regular basis. Ned's sister Maggie was also very helpful in this matter and he and Maggie worked closely to both ensure the gang had what they needed and at confusing and misleading the police. In January of 1879, Tom was arrested, along with many other Kelly sympathisers, and was remanded in custody five times before being released on the 25th of February. In the middle of all this ongoing Kelly tumult in May of that year, Tom was involved in a terrible accident during a bit of roughhousing with his cousin, John Lloyd. It seems that the boys were roughhousing in a playful fight together, but when John fell over during the excitement, he fell hitting his head on a doorstep and he died some minutes afterwards. While witnesses were able to report what had happened, and it was clear this was a case of unfortunate playfulness gone horribly wrong, Tom was charged at Beechworth with manslaughter of his cousin. With witnesses confirming this was no malicious act, the jury found him not guilty, but Tom was so distressed and remorseful that he twice tried to suicide. Clearly, he was in a terrible state of sorrow and regret. At some point around that time, Tom moved in with Maggie at 11 Mile Creek. With her own husband, Bill Skilling, serving the six-year sentence resulting from Fitzpatrick's charges, she and Tom began a romantic relationship and they went on in the years that followed to have 11 children together. Maggie died in 1896 and was buried in an unmarked grave at Greta. Tom then married Rachel Hart after Maggie died, Rachel being the sister of Steve Hart, and they had six more children. Rachel outlived Tom, who died in August 1927 near Wangaratta, and he was also buried in Greta Cemetery, in a plot adjoining Maggie's. One of Tom and Rachel's sons, also called Tom Lloyd, born in uh, 1908, went on to join the Victoria Police in 1934. 
by then quite the different organisation to the force of old Tom's day. So it's good to note that some of the antagonism towards the authorities was fading and some healing had begun by then, for that branch of the family at least. In another interesting side note, the authors Jones and Maloney both claim to have been told by a relative of Tom Lloyd that written evidence related to plans for the declaring of a republic in the northeast existed. Though as far as I know, nothing proven to be original has ever been made public. We'll talk about this theory in one of the future episodes. Perhaps one of the most fascinating characters of all is Aaron Sherritt. Fascinating and perplexing, really. This is another part of the story that many historians interpret differently. It's difficult to know exactly what the truth might have been in relation to Aaron. Aaron's Irish Protestant family came to Australia in 1854, initially farming near Melbourne and then moving northeast to the Ovens Valley to try their hand at prospecting. When that failed to pay off, they started work on a dairy farm in the Woolshed Valley. Aaron was born in August 1855, the eldest of their 12 children. As mentioned before, Aaron attended the Woolshed Common School, which is where he became besties with Joe. As a youth, he apparently had an interesting sense of dress. Caulfield quotes a local newspaper owner describing Sherritt as, quote, flash as Lucifer, dressed up to kill. Anyone seeing him coming down Ford Street would ask, who the hell's this? Some advance agent for the circus, unquote. <laughs> the, those lads in their fashion, offending the local sensibilities all over the place. And do note the picture of Sherritt posted on the Australian Histories podcast website with that chin strap worn ostentatiously under his nose instead, greeter mob style. Throughout their childhood, he and Joe were thick as thieves and full of pranks, which often led to trouble with their neighbours, and they remained best mates entering their twenties. That Joe, and indeed Ned, were close to Aaron and completely trusted him was not in dispute in the early days. He was the person they came to for help straight after the Stringybark Creek shootings, as they tried to make their way over the border, and he helped with supplies and communicated with the gang's families. If he was unhappy at not being given the option to join the gang and come with them, we cannot know. But it seems that Ned was keen to keep everyone not directly involved at Stringybark Creek out of the frame, knowing that it had now gotten very serious indeed. So Aaron was not invited to travel with them, though probably he was asked to scout ahead for some periods as they travelled. However, in the days and months that followed, as the police got underway with the Great Sebastopol raids, they hoovered up anyone they thought might be associated with the Kellys, or might be useful in any way. It is suggested that the police, keen on using Aaron as an informant, may have offered him a choice then. Assist the police in order to save Joe's life, once the gang were inevitably captured, or watch him die with the rest of the Kelly gang, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid style. Anyway, we will certainly be discussing the complexities of Aaron Sherritt's part in the developing Kelly saga in a future episode. But in the end, his childhood friend Joe, knowing him as he did after all those years, became convinced he was capable of becoming a turncoat. No doubt the police were feeding misinformation to other informants too, that was getting back to the gang, placing Sherritt in a very dangerous situation, and causing him to be ostracised in the end, making him a target as a traitor. 
so more on that later. Isaiah Wild Wright was a nominal member of the Greeter Mob too, despite coming from over the range in Mansfield and also being a Protestant. He's recorded as being a farmer and a horsebreaker, and of course you will remember it was Wild that brought the stolen horse to the Kelly homestead, and it was that stolen horse, unknown to Ned, which led to his three-year jail term for receiving a stolen horse. Ned certainly gave Wright a thrashing next time he saw him after his release from jail, for not warning him about the stolen horse, but they remained loyal mates after that showdown. Though Wild was known as, yes, a wild man and an unbeatable boxer, Kelly had beaten him fair and square and Ned was always held in great respect by Wild right after that. He had a bit of a reputation for being a big mouth and a reckless stirrer, but in fact he went on to become one of the leading sympathisers of the Kelly gang and quite a strong support for them during those outlaw years, his wife being a relative of the Kellys too. He was at Glen Rowan for the last stand and he helped the Kelly and Hart families after the showdown. He later worked with Jim Kelly to steal some horses, for which they were both caught. But once again, the Kelly served five years for that theft, while inexplicably Wild Wright was acquitted. He was a very slippery character apparently, or perhaps he just had a really helpful and competent lawyer. That was something the Kelly sure could have used. He later joined a boxing troupe and he toured with the circus. He was known to be working for Worth Circus when in his 50s. Caulfield suggests he died in 1911 at Newcastle Waters in the Northern Territory. So Wild Wright certainly led a colourful life, as they say. I think what's clear is that all of these boys had a reckless streak, an anti-social, anti-establishment attitude. And they were all in trouble, living outside the law in a number of ways, and probably for similar reasons to the Kellys. Their attitudes would not have been unusual amongst those Irish Catholic selectors in the northeast, and who knows if any of them may have outgrown their teenage rebellion if things had panned out differently. But with the Kelly outbreak escalating, what's likely instead is that many of them would have got in much deeper had Ned's plan at Glen Rowan succeeded. No doubt there are very many other interesting characters associated with the Kelly saga, and I do want to say a little more about some of the senior police but we might look at them in a later episode. I think we probably need to wrap up the program shortly and I wanted to just talk a little about Mansfield in the wake of the police deaths first. As mentioned in that previous episode, the police deaths at Stringybark Creek came as a complete and devastating shock for the community of Mansfield and indeed for the Victorian public. While the Kellys were trouble, it seems no one expected a showdown that might lead to police deaths though a few of the police party themselves did express personal nervousness and anxiety to their family and friends about confronting Ned, and they were certainly more than adequately prepared for gunning the Kellys down should they deem that action necessary. After McIntyre raised the alarm, the town of Mansfield virtually shut down, both out of fear and in mourning. And of course, any able-bodied men were drafted or volunteered to head back into the ranges in that first week to recover the bodies. The Stringybark Creek police were buried with much sadness and great respect at the Mansfield Cemetery. As mentioned last episode again, the townsfolk, supported by the Victorian government, went on to build a very impressive memorial to their fallen police in the heart of Mansfield. That memorial was unveiled on April 22, 1880 with a large crowd in attendance, 
including Chief Commissioner Police, Captain Standish and prominent politician David Gornson, who we'll talk about in later episodes. The inscription there reads, in part, quote, to the memory of three brave men who lost their lives while endeavouring to capture a band of armed criminals in the Wombat Ranges near Mansfield, 26th October 1878, unquote. In the years since, their names have also been added to the police memorial at the Springvale Necropolis and to a memorial for police killed in the line of duty, which was unveiled at St Kilda Road in Melbourne, July 2002. There is now also a memorial at the Stringybark Creek site. Actually, that whole site has been revamped in recent years and is now a very moving and informative place to visit. A great-grandson of Kennedy, also Michael Kennedy, joined the Victoria Police in April uh, 1972. In 1978, on the 100th anniversary of the Stringybark Creek shootings, the then 26-year-old senior constable Kennedy attended the commemorative ceremony there. He was apparently carrying the gold watch his great-grandfather was wearing when he was killed, which had been returned to the family. Just as an aside, the journalist Cookson published the following story in the Sydney Sun as part of the 1911 The Kelly Gang From Within series, and offered the following explanation regarding the return of Kennedy's watch to his family. I've abbreviated the story slightly, but we'll put the link to the article on the episode references in the Australian Histories podcast webpage. Quote, One thing more I'd like to clear up, said the man from Glenrowan, is the mystery of the restoration of Sergeant Kennedy's watch. It was a gold watch and very valuable one. After the tragedy in the Wombat Ranges, Ned Kelly wore his watch for a long time. Mrs Kelly was very anxious to gain possession of it, and she enlisted the assistance of a man named Wallace who had been in the police force and who was at the time keeping the Broken River Hotel. Acting on her suggestion, Wallace let it be known amongst the friends of the outlaws that he would give £10 to anyone who returned the watch to him. One day a little girl about 14 or 15 years of age, I know now that she was a cousin of Ned Kelly, went into Wallace's hotel and told him that she had come for the £10. Wallace tried hard to find out from the girl who she was or what her antecedents were, but she would say nothing but that she had come with the watch and that she was not to be interfered with. Wallace had sense enough to know that strict compliance with the letter of the compact was his safest course. So he handed over the £10 to the child and received the watch in return. Not long afterwards, it was in Mrs Kennedy's possession. Now, Cookson wrote that in 1911, but I wasn't quite certain when it was that the watch was returned. Anyway, when the younger Kennedy joined the police force, he said, I enjoy reading about the Kelly gang and my great-grandfather. It is all a part of history now, and it would be stupid to say I bear any grudge about it, but I do hope I can be a policeman as good as the sergeant, unquote. Around the time of the 1978 commemoration, he added... Quote, some of my family feel bitter, but I've read a fair bit about what happened and I see it as just unfortunate, unquote. And I think that's quite a laudable attitude, actually. And he's quite right. There is still a tremendous level of emotion invested in this story, and not only by the families involved, but by interested members of the public who have identified with one side or the other, either seeing the gang still as nothing more than career criminals and murderers, or as heroes fighting the corrupt system for the downtrodden, 
forced into any heinous actions. The vehemence of the beliefs of those at the far ends of this spectrum can be quite confronting. The following is an excerpt from a fairly contemporary newspaper report. Quote, there was an emotive ceremony at Mansfield Cemetery today to rededicate the newly restored graves of the three police officers murdered by Ned Kelly and his gang. It comes amid continued debate over how Kelly should be remembered, with the state's top cop, Ken Lay, joining families to blast the cultural adoration of the bushranger. Kelly and his mob of thugs would have been consigned to the past had they not wrapped a piece of iron around their heads." Unquote. That's probably a true reflection too, actually. It is the iconic armour that makes Kelly so interesting. We will get to that in a later episode. And there are also some quite aggressive opinions visible out there still, often published on the web, defending Kelly's actions with a passion that's just as firm and confronting, and seemingly completely disregarding the actual and real loss of life and the feelings of those who suffered the grief and the death of their loved ones. I think we can understand this polarisation to some extent and that emotions will run high, but fathers, sons, husbands actually lost their lives and no matter the stance you must have about murder versus self-defence, Kelly as hero or terrorist, there was real grief and loss and sorrow for many families right throughout the Kelly outbreak, including these poor police doing the duty their government asked of them and later for the family members of the Kelly gang and those unlucky enough to be involved in their last stand. So it is a sorrowful tale all round, really. But after all this time, we should at least be able to review and consider with cool heads and some respect and understanding for each view. So we'll leave the story now for today. Next time, we'll look at the gang's next move, the daring hold-up at Euroa. With more witnesses interacting with the gang now, we begin to learn a lot more about their demeanour and their behaviour, and we'll have more witness accounts describing how they act and what they say. Can't wait to share that with you in two weeks. And I would once again encourage you to log into iTunes or your preferred podcatcher, if you could find the time, and I'd really be most appreciative if you could leave a positive review and boost the discoverability of the Australian Histories podcast, and therefore help grow our listening community. You might also like to head to the Australian Histories podcast Facebook page, and there are links to that from the website, and you could like, follow, and share that page too, if you would care to lend your encouragement as well. That'll help boost the profile of the Australian Histories podcast and maybe bring in a few more listeners. That would be lovely. All those activities make the podcast more visible and I'd really appreciate your help with that. So finally, just remember to check for the additional material on the Australian Histories podcast website at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. There's lots of related images and links there this week and the contact details can be found there also. Thanks so much for listening. Take care and I'll talk to you again in two weeks. Cheers. Cheers.